You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Good morning, Life Church, and welcome, welcome to the beginning of the Christmas season. Or in the language of church history, we call this season Advent. If you're new here, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Life Church Livonia. And Advent is a season where we slow down. Here at Life Church Livonia, we try not to add a bunch of extra Christmas activities because we want to take a breath. We want to slow down. Winter is slowing the whole world down, and we want to take our cue from that and slow down with it. And we, in this season, want to remember that Jesus came from heaven to earth to be a light in the darkness. The Son of God was born as a human being to live a perfect life in the way God intended. And he lived to show us how to live. He died to show us how to die. And he resurrected to give us new life and life in all its fullness, both here on earth and life after death. This series that we're doing this Christmas or Advent season, we are calling Down to Earth. And in this season, we're talking about how Jesus came down to earth from heaven. And when Jesus came down to earth, hope came down to earth with him. Joy came down to earth with him. Peace came down to earth with him. And even heaven came down to earth with him. Now, we're doing something a little unique in this Advent series. Normally when we do this, we look directly at the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus. But in this series, we're going to be looking at through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah towards the coming of Jesus' birth. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, and we'll get to him in a little bit. But as we begin, we're going to be talking about hope today. And the title of this sermon is Hope Came Down to Earth. And I just want to get on the same page as we begin and and define what I mean when I say hope. Hope is simply this. It's the desire for things to change and the belief that the changes will happen. Simply put, hope is believing that tomorrow will be better than today. So how many people, just here by a show of comments uh, or likes or whatever you want to put in the chat there, how many of you like streaming shows and streaming movies and stuff like that? I think most of us, right? Now, some of us with our hands up, some of us like re-watching shows and movies for like over and over and over again, and some of us are one-time wonders. If you like to re-watch movies, keep your hands up, and if you don't like it, put your hands down. Okay, if you're at home and your hand is up and you're a re-watcher, my wife Amber is a re-watcher, and I don't understand you people, okay? <laughs> I just gotta say... I am a one-time wonder. I hate re-watching shows. I do not like watching them because I hate knowing how it's going to end. I mean, I hate... I, the whole part that I love about it is like discovering the story for the first time and being surprised when the turn of events comes. And I hate spoilers. I mean, so much if I'm playing a video game and I get stuck, Amber will get frustrated with me because she'll be like, please, Alex, you've been playing the same level for two hours. Can't we just look it up? And I'm like, nope, I'm not doing it. You know, like I just, I don't want the spoilers. So like I said, Amber's a rewatcher and, and I really can't understand that. However, there is an exception to this rule for me. If I'm watching a show or a movie and we're kind of like halfway through or whatever, 
and things start looking a little dicey. You know, like the main character looks like, um, is the main character gonna die? I don't want spoilers per se, but I will kind of like, you know, thumb through the coming episodes and just like kind of look at the thumbnail pictures and be like, okay, is his face in any of these, <laughs> you know? Are the titles things like The Great Escape or The Tables Have Turned or are the titles things like No Way Out, All Hope is Lost. You know, <laughs> like I'm just trying to get a sense of like, I don't want spoilers, but I don't mind a hint, you know? Now I, I can really remember, actually, I was reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, big fan of Harry Potter, and if you don't know Harry Potter, that's the last book in the series, the seventh book in the series. And there's a moment, spoiler alert, when Harry dies. Okay. Now, it's been out for like over 10 years. So if you didn't know that, you just don't like Harry Potter. However, Harry dies like most of the way through the seventh book. And I was like, no. I did not just give six and a half books for the main freaking character to lose the final battle. And so I didn't want to spoil her per se, but I just kind of like flipped to the last two or three pages and I, I didn't read them. I was just kind of scanning, you know, to see like, do I see the name Harry anywhere in here? And I, I wasn't looking for spoilers. I was looking for hope though, right? I was looking for hope that no matter how bad things seem right now, they get better by the end of the story. And when I start to lose the hope the story doesn't end well, it makes me want to be a little bit of a rewatcher, and it makes me a little more interested in the spoilers. Anyone else do that? I mean, anyone else, does your spouse hate when you do that too? Because my neighbor does not like when I do that. And I know I can't be alone in this. I can't be alone in this desire for hope. Because hope is not just a want or a preference. Hope is a psychological necessity for the human being. We were made to need hope. There's a tragic but true story actually illustrating this profoundly. A man was told by his doctor he had an aggressive form of cancer and he only had a few more months to live. The man was so disheartened by this news, he gave up all hope of the cancer ever going into remission, and within a few weeks he died. When an autopsy was done on the man, they found no trace of any cancer in his body. The cancer didn't kill him. It was the lack of hope that killed him. And all of us need hope. We need it deeply ingrained in our bodies just to survive throughout life. We need hope both individually and corporately. Corporately, we need hope that, I mean, we're living in really uncertain and scary times right now. We need hope that even though the economy is going crazy and hyperinflation is happening and there's a possible impending recession and housing prices are through the roof and interest rates are skyrocketing, we need hope that somehow things will be okay in the end. We need hope that, I mean, the war in Israel right now is not just an international tragedy, it's become another thing to divide the U.S. politically. It's become another hot-button issue with just vehement vitriol on both sides. And it is painful to watch. We need hope in that. We need hope in the war between Russia and Ukraine, which continues to rage on with mixed reports on the status of who's winning and what the international outcomes of either loss is going to be. We need hope as the beginning of AI is here. And it's still uncertain how it's going to change jobs and lives and education and world politics. This is one 
that is super concerning for me personally. I have a lot of fear around what the, how the world is going to change with AI. And, and a lot of my fears are that it's not going to be for the better. We need hope surrounding the upcoming presidential election, which I also have a lot of fear about. This is going to be a major test and a storm that puts our faith as Christians to the test on a public way as we navigate lies and vitriol and divisive rhetoric and racial pain and trauma and perhaps even violence in our nation. While the world is crying out Democrats versus Republicans, we need to be crying out kingdom of heaven over kingdom of earth. We need hope in each of these things corporately, but we also need hope personally, don't we? Just on an individual level. We need hope that our health is going to improve and that we're not going to be stuck in this sickness forever. We need hope that our broken relationships with our families, our parents, our kids, our ex, our coworkers, we need hope those relationships can heal and won't stay broken. We need hope that our marriages are going to heal and that are actually end up going to be uh, being a source of life to us and not just a source of pain. We need hope that our financial situation is going to turn around for the better and the concerns we have today won't even be on our radar tomorrow. We need hope that the season of hardship and suffering we've been in will someday come to an end and that we will have felt like it was worth it when it was over because of how we grew. We need hope that we're not alone and that people care about us and that they see us and that our contributions matter. In each of these things, we need hope. We need hope corporately. We need hope individually. And I just wonder, where do you need hope today? Just like I did when Harry died, we need hope that somehow, some way, the end of the story is going to be good. And that's not just true of us in this day and age. It's true of every character throughout all human history, including every character in Scripture. I'm sorry, I meant people, not characters. This was true of Adam and Eve. This is true of Moses. This was true of Joshua. Esther needed hope. Deborah needed hope. David needed hope. And Isaiah, the person we're talking about today, needed hope. In this Christmas series, we're going to be looking at the Christmas narrative through the lens of the prophet Isaiah as we look at his prophecies about the birth of Jesus. Isaiah was a prophet of God. He lived in Jerusalem, which was the capital of Israel, and he prophesied during the reigns of five kings. Those kings were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh. Now, these are not just names of people. These were the leaders who determined the spiritual climate for the whole nation. Uzziah, for example, was a godly king, and he led Israel towards God toward, to the whole end of his reign. Jotham, his son, was also a pretty good king. He had some ups and downs there at the end, but overall he did really good, leading the nation towards God. Ahaz, however, was a wicked king, introducing things like child sacrifice and demon worship back into Israelite culture. His son Hezekiah, however, tried to do, undo so much of that damage as he tried to point the nation back to God. But in the last 15 years of Hezekiah's life, he really became lukewarm. And in those years, his years of lukewarmness, he had a son named Manasseh. Manasseh didn't really see his dad follow God. And Manasseh became a wicked king, doing a lot of evil in God's eyes. And it was under Manasseh's orders that Isaiah was killed by being sawn in two. Of the estimated 60 years that Isaiah prophesied, only 14 to 25 of those were during a time that Israel actually followed God, meaning only a third of his ministry was during a time that was good, and the rest of his ministry was during times of political, national, and spiritual decline. Isaiah was called by God to speak to this country he loved 
as he watched it fall away from the Lord morally, spiritually, financially, structurally, and politically. Does that sound familiar? During his ministry, God called him to prophesy about impending punishments for Israel's sin and in hopes that they would repent. Isaiah prophesies 34 prophecies of destruction in 64 chapters of this book. Many of those prophecies were against Israel, and I'm sure as an Israelite, he hoped they would not come true. However, even in the midst of looming destruction and a punishment for sin, God doesn't give Isaiah only visions of destruction. He gives Isaiah visions of a coming hope, a redeemer, a restorer, a future Messiah. Isaiah records one of these visions and one of these prophecies in chapter 11 of his book. And in these first 10 verses, we see Isaiah give, our God give Isaiah a vision of hope. And it's these 10 verses I want to look at today and wonder, how did they give Isaiah hope and how do they give us hope? So we're going to read uh, the 10 verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Now you might be thinking, wow, that's really interesting. There's a lot of beautiful imagery in that. But I don't understand what this has to do with hope. I don't understand how this affects my marriage and my finances and my relationship with my family, etc. And so that's our question today, isn't it? How did this prophecy of Isaiah give him hope? And how does it give us hope? To answer this question, we're going to look at the passage in three sections and examine how each of these sections, really in each of them, God is communicating a different kind of hope over specific things to the people of Israel and then see what he might be communicating to us in each of those sections as well. So we're going to start with the first one and it's, it says this, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of, the, of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So God's using imagery here. He's using this visual. And he's using a visual of a shoot and a stump. So the question is, what is a stump? Not a trick question, right? Put it in the chat. What is a stump? That's right. It's what's left over after a tree has been cut down, right? So the fact that Isaiah 
is looking at a stump and he's not looking at a tree means that whatever had grown there is dead and it is gone. It's over. The battle is lost. The stump is a symbol and it's a symbol that represents the end. As Isaiah spoke this prophecy, the imagery of this stump represented the loss of the tree of Israel, meaning the end of their nation. The nation, the temple, everything they knew was going to be lost because of their sin, and only this stump was going to be left. That's what the stump meant for Israel. But today, what in your life is a stump? What in your life has been lost? Is it your relationship with your kids? Is it your relationship with your parents or siblings? Is it your health, your wellness, your vitality? Is it your financial situation? Is it your marriage? Where in your life does it feel like you've hit the end? Or in the language of church history, the dark night of the soul? We see in this passage that Isaiah sees the stump. He looks at it. He acknowledges what has been lost, which is difficult to do in its own right. But Isaiah's focus isn't on the stump. It's on the shoot. If the stump represents the end, the shoot growing out of the stump represents a new beginning from what is left over at the end. The shoot is a sign that no matter what tragedy may have taken the tree, no tragedy can stop God from bringing life out of death. For Israel, this was the end, but not for God. No ending is ever final for God. God is so good, He is so strong, He's so powerful, He's so loving, that no amount of death can prevent His resurrection power from working. So there's a shoot in the stump. And Isaiah sees in this vision that this shoot will grow into a whole branch that produces fruit again. That there will be a resurrection for this dead tree. And in this vision, God shows Isaiah an image of resurrection and redemption. However, that resurrection is not a return to the old Israel. The old is truly gone. But even though we don't get the old thing back, there is something new that God is birthing. After Isaiah descri uh, describes this um, shoot in the stump and the branch that's going to come from it, that's going to bear fruit, he describes um, that this branch is actually a person on whom God's spirit rests. And in the image of the shoot in the stump, we see our first vision of hope. We see the hope that all that's been lost will be made new. Where do you need to hear that today? What in your life has been lost that you are longing to be made new? God has been, uh, begins by showing Isaiah this hope that everything that has been and will be lost can be made new. And I believe God doesn't just want to start Isaiah's Advent season with that. He wants to start our Advent season with that same hope. In Jesus, we see the hope that all that's lost will be made new. And then Isaiah moves on to the second part of the vision. The second part of the vision says this. It begins to describe this redeemer, this shoot in the stump. And it says that, he will not um, judge by what he sees or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. 
with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So this Redeemer is a judge. And not just a judge, this Redeemer is a just judge. A judge that doesn't favor people by how much money or power or influence or reputation or notoriety or intellect or force they have. This judge will do the right thing no matter what and bring justice to pass. No one can bribe this judge. He is in no one's pocket and he cannot be intimidated. He cannot be coerced. He cannot be bought by a political party. He cannot be threatened by a gang. He cannot be lulled into a middle-class sense of security. This judge is simply just and purely true. He will see the right thing come to pass no matter what. I love this. And I love this line where Isaiah talks about this judge and says that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. There have been several times in my life, and maybe in yours as well, where the Lord has said things to me that are so penetratingly true. It just feels like, God, oh, the Lord, oh, it's, so, it's so overwhelmingly true. It can't be anything but true, and it's so painful but so real it's like the veil on reality is lifted and i can see what is actual and i just love that idea that when jesus speaks that's what's happening he is striking in the uh, uh sermon on the mount and in his parables and in his prayer in john 17 for the church he is striking the earth with the rod of his mouth revealing what is simply true and then he ends by describing that this judge has righteousness and faithfulness like a belt and a sash. Now, in our day and age, right, we wear belts at the top of our pelvis usually to hold our pants up, right? That's what we do. And actually, <laughs> sometimes people use suspenders. And one time in college, I tried to use both pants and suspenders. And I asked my buddy a question and he goes, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean what am I doing? He goes, you're wearing a belt and suspenders. They do the same job. And I said, yeah, well, I thought it looked cool. And he said, I can't trust you anymore. And I said, why not? He said, how can I trust a man who doesn't even trust his own pants? <laughs> anyway, that has nothing to do with the sermon. It just reminded me of that. So um, a belt and a sash. We don't really wear sashes these days. Belts are more functional. Some people use them for fashion. In ancient times, however, people didn't wear trousers, they wore robes, right? And so belts were more fashion forward and less functional to a degree, right? And they weren't worn at the top of the pelvis, at the top of the hips. They were worn over the belly button. In other words, over the center of a person, right? So if you were to picture a person who is wearing faithfulness and righteousness as a belt, you would be looking at a person who was wrapped and righteousness and faithfulness around their core. And I think that's what Isaiah is getting at here, that this judge is just, and around this judge's very core, he's wrapped in faithfulness and in righteousness, that he is someone who is at his very center, righteous and faithful, and he will see what is right come to pass no matter what. And so we see Isaiah's second vision of hope here, we see the hope that all wrongs will be made right. Every personal wrong that's ever been done to you will be made right by Jesus. 
every painful thing ever done to you, every hurtful word ever said, everything that's ever been stolen, every time you've ever been cheated or slighted, God will set every single thing right. And that's not just true personally, it's true corporately, universally. Every judge that's ever issued a false judgment, every hateful action, every racist attack, every corporate greed, every single thing done by every single person will be brought before God and every single thing will be made right. The vision doesn't end there though. Isaiah goes on to talk about the kind of world this redeeming judge will make as he sets the world right. And this is the third part of the vision. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hands in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. I love this passage because Isaiah is not seeing the kind of earth we're familiar with. He's seeing in a totally new kind of place, a different kind of nature. He's describing the elimination of the predator-prey relationships that we take for granted. It's just a simple part of the fabric of nature. And that means either one of two things. Either the predators, the wolf, the leopard, the lion, the cobra, either they're living in a false peace with their prey, simply denying their biology until they eventually starve, or they have been fundamentally changed and transformed to not need to eat the, lion, the lamb, the goat, the calf, and instead eat the straw. In this vision, we don't see the nature we think we know. We see creation the way God intended it. We see a creation where there's relationships, where one relationship doesn't need to dominate or subjugate the other in order to survive. This is a totally redeemed world, where the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Which, by the way, is a, such a funny thing to say, isn't it? Because there is no difference between the waters and the sea, right? I think about that. As the waters cover the sea, what's the distinction between the waters and the sea? I don't think there is one. So if this new world, this new earth is this kind of earth where the knowledge of God fills the earth like the waters cover the sea, it, what he's saying is to be on earth is to know God. That's how thick and, and vast and overflowing God's presence is over the whole world. Isaiah ends the vision by saying that this messianic redeemer, this root of Jesse, notice by the way, he's both the root, meaning the beginning, the origin, and he's the fruit, the branch, meaning the fulfillment. Very cool about Jesus. So this root of Jesse stands as a banner that every nation will flock to as he creates a world where true peace reigns because creation has been fundamentally transformed from the inside out. And this is our third hope that Isaiah's vision offers us, the hope that true peace will reign. Through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah, we are invited to begin this Christmas season with a vision of hope. Hope that all things will be made new. Hope that all wrongs will be made right. 
Hope that true peace will reign and all conflicts will cease. The power of the birth of Jesus is that these began coming true on Christmas. When Jesus came down to earth on Christmas, hope came down to earth with him. This is the power of Christmas. And as I reflected on Isaiah's vision, it reminded me of another vision God gave a woman not in scripture, but in church history, a woman named Julian of Norwich. Julian lived in England during the time of enormous political and social and economic upheaval. She was born in 1342. She died in 1416. She saw the beginning of the Hundred Years' War between England and France. She lived through the bubonic plague, which killed more than a third of Europe's population. And she saw a church divided and in moral compromise with government rulers. Julian chose to live then as what she called an anchoress meaning she withdrew from society to seek God on behalf of the world. And she went into this room attached to this small church and never left the church after she entered that room. She stayed there the rest of her life seeking God and praying for the world. And while she was in prayer, God gave her several visions, or what she calls showings. She meditated on these visions for 20 years before writing them in a book called The Revelations of Divine Love, which you can buy. And in the Revelations of Divine Love, she wrote this passage. All will be well, and all will be well, and every kind of thing will be well. There are many deeds so evilly done and lead to such great harms that it seems to us impossible that any good could ever, or any good result could ever come of them, such as the angels who fell out of heaven because of pride and many who live unchristian lives and so die out of God's love. And all this being so, it seemed to me that it was impossible that every kind of thing should be well, as our Lord revealed at that time. And to this I had no other answer as a revelation from our Lord except this. What is impossible to you is not impossible to me. I shall preserve my word in everything and I shall make everything well. So as we begin this holiday season, what would it look like to face your health problems with the hope that all will be well? What would it look like to face your broken relationships with the hope that all will be well? What would it look like to face your financial situation with the hope that all will be well? What would it look like to face this season of hardship with the hope that all will be well? What would it look like to face the stress in your life right now with the hope that all will be well? What would it look like to face the current economy with the hope that all will be well? Or the war in Israel with the hope that all will be well? Or the Russian and Ukraine war with the hope that all will be well? Or the advent of AI with the hope that all will be well? As we close our time together today, I just wonder where you're at. Where in your life does it feel difficult to believe that all will be well, that tomorrow will be better than today? Where in your life do you need to believe that the hope that all that's lost will be made new? Where do you need to believe that all wrongs will be made right? Where do you need to believe that true peace will reign? When Jesus was born, this amazing thing happened that theologians call the already not yet. And what they mean is the moment Jesus was born, heaven entered into earth. 
and the kingdom of heaven began moving forward to create this new world that Isaiah sees. And so the kingdom of God has already broken through in Jesus, but it's not yet fully here. True peace does not yet reign. Creation has not been transformed, including you and I. All wrongs have not yet been made right. All is not well yet. And yet, and yet, at Christmas we pause to remember that even though it's not yet fully here, the kingdom is coming. That this good and beautiful world that God made at the beginning that we somehow have never seen, but we know in our bones that it's real. We know in our bones that there's a world I don't have mental health issues. We know in our bones that there's a world where divorce doesn't happen. We know in our bones there's a world where people shouldn't kill each other. We know in our bones that there's a world where greed doesn't dictate what's right and wrong. We know it somehow, some way, and we look for it. And most governments are trying to create this thing that God made in the beginning. And the reason it's not that way is because of sin. Because when you and I and Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sin simply means to miss the mark. Miss the mark of what? Miss the mark of God's design. When we live outside of the way God intended, we break ourselves and we break this world. And every wrong thing in our lives, every war, every greed, every physical ailment, every malformity in our minds, in our bodies, every sickness, every disease, even death itself, these are from sin. And when Jesus was born on Christmas, he came to eliminate sin and bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth to restore this good and beautiful world God had made. And he eliminated sin by living a perfect life and taking all of it on himself on the cross. And when he died, he put all of it to death. And then when Jesus rose from the again, he uh, rose from the dead, he rose into this new creation. And he invites you and he invites me to start living in that way today. I need you to know that. And that world you've been looking for where everything's made right, Jesus and Jesus alone offer that to you. It's because of Jesus we have hope this Christmas. And if you need that hope today, I want to invite you to take a step towards God in your relationship with Him. And I want you to pray with me right now. Lord, I long for this world where peace reigns in me and in the world where what's right is done in me and in the world, where all will be well in me and in the world, where everything that's lost can somehow be made new in me and in the world. And God, I have tried to make that and I have failed over and over and over again. And every attempt I do at trying to make it myself, I, Lord, I just become more broken and it never satisfies. God, free me. Save me from myself and from my sin. And Lord, make in me today the beginnings of this new world I see through Isaiah's eyes. Jesus, I accept your sacrifice on the cross and God, I surrender my life to you. Fill me with hope that the end of the story is good. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with me, please let us know. Please. Please let us know via the digital bulletin, the links in the video description. We want to help you take your next steps. God bless, and I can't wait to see you next week as we continue this Christmas series with my brother Josh Merriweather from Life Church Southfield.